So Happy New Year. Just by way of introduction, for those who don't know me, my, my name is Alan Nielsen. I'm one of the elders here at the Mission Church. This morning I have the opportunity to preach. As you all well know, today is the first day of a new year. You know, I'm not one of those that um, stays up till the new year comes in, even though I heard all the noise this morning, woke me, woke me up, and I thought it was, I thought it was uh, going on like three in the morning. Looked at the clock, and it's like 12.02. Okay. So, in our culture, you know, it's very common for there to be a level of excitement for a new year. You know, it's also very common for people to make changes and commitments to ourselves to better our health and wealth and just our general well-being. You know, so basically it's a time that we set new goals. Um, so it's no surprise that uh, the local gyms are full at the beginning of the new year. Uh, new diets are started. Healthy eating plans are committed to. Just a host of changes that people make to make this year different than the last. You know, we call these things our New Year's resolutions. You know, and as these new goals are set, people start posting these little pithy notes as reminders to themselves, you know, how to keep themselves motivated toward the changes that are going to happen this year. You know, then, of course, there's also uh, some of those cynical quotes. I found one the other day. I was looking up. Oscar Wilde said this. Good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. So there's some truth in that, to that for sure. You know, but likewise, many Christians also set for themselves, you know, a commitment to maybe go through the whole Bible, read the whole Bible in that year. And so they'll start a Bible reading plan that will take them through the whole Bible in the year. You know, all these things can be very good and are probably quite necessary, you know, I think there is a, a weightier matter that perhaps we should make some room for, uh, as it may intrude into our lives with a greater measure of urgency. I call, the, I call this the gorilla in the room. Let me explain what I mean by the gorilla in the room. You know, there's a phenomenon that cognitive scientists call perceptual blindness, Cause is due to an intense focus on something very specific, causing you to fail to see what is plainly in your visible field. You know that you should have. This should have been obvious. So about 20 years ago, they did this study. Um, there's about a half a dozen students participated, and uh, three of them wore white shirts, and three of them wore black shirts, and they would pass a basketball among each other, and they recorded this video, and you as, the te- you as the test subject were to watch the video, and then they were gi- giving you instructions. They said, now what you need to do is you need to count how many times the ball is passed to the people in the white shirts, not the black shirts, just the white shirts. And, and so then the people would watch the video, pretty short video. When they get through it, the instructor would say, well, how many times did the ball pass to the people in the white? And the answer, the correct answer is 15. You know, most people get that right. 
Then the instructor said, did you see the gorilla in the room? No. It's about well over half of the people that watch it don't see the gorilla in the room. So they say, okay, let's, let's go back. They rewind the video. Now they say, this time, just watch the video. Don't count basketballs. Just watch the video. So they rewind it, and the person sits there and watches the video. And sure enough, as, as the video is playing, shortly after them passing the balls, a man in a gorilla suit walks right through the middle of them passing the ball, turns and faces the camera, pounds his chest like this, and then walks off the set. Shocks people because they didn't see it. You know, while this test is it's fun and interesting, it, it, it is a reality that we don't often see what is going on right in front of us. You know, a few weeks ago, the House passed a bill to codify same-sex marriage, followed by President Biden signing the bill into law. The bill was cleverly titled the Respect for Marriage Act. But it's a hoax, and it's crafty, and it sounds like it's respecting marriage, but it does nothing of the sort. You know, we're living in a rapidly changing landscape here in America. The changing landscape is in open hostility to God. This is clear to be sure. The times, they are changing, but the good news is God does not change. And He is sovereign over all things. And I think that perhaps there might be an obscure benefit to these changing times. Let me explain where my thoughts are going here. You know, when things are going well in our life, when there's plenty to eat, when our life is not being threatened, our churches are well thought of, it's human nature to fall into a pattern of ease and forgetfulness. If we could, we would escape all trial, hardship, persecution, suffering, all of it. I know I would. But we all want the benefits that are derived from the suffering and the persecution. We want the deeper faith and the joy that comes with a closer walk with the Lord. You know, it's a great act of divine love and mercy to be driven to the Lord. Because here is the truth. Left to ourselves, we're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. You know, there's a poem that I learned years ago by Robert Browning Hamilton. Maybe some of you have heard it. It goes like this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, Narrow word said she, but all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I think it's true. This nation has sat very comfortably under what I like to call the biblical canopy or safety net. It's found in many of its laws and governance. These laws have been drawn from the Old and New Testaments. I'm not, I don't mean to imply that we're anything like ancient Israel. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but much of the laws of this country were built upon biblical principles. There's been an unprecedented amount of comfort, ease, and general prosperity and great wealth in this country because 
was based on the principles that were found in the Bible. God has blessed this nation. We have prospered, but we have forgotten God. Well, let me tighten it up a bit. Among professing Christians here in America, I'm speaking collectively, we have fallen asleep. We are anemic in our theology and doctrine, and many errors have crept into the church. In American history, there is an event that historians call the Second Great Awakening. History has shown us that has brought in a lot of false ideas and doctrinal shifts. And well, there's a, there was a greater emphasis placed on self-improvement and social reform. It was more geared around emotional fervor. One of the byproducts that came from the Second Great Awakening has been the many false religions that have sprung up as a result, including Mormonism. For any of you that didn't know, I spent the, the most part of my life as a believing Mormon. But when God saved me and I began to study the Bible, I was perplexed. I thought to myself, how did Joseph Smith ever sell this religion to the Christians of his day? I think I know now, and I think it's an important point that we should not dismiss. I think it is this, they did not know the Word of God that was found in their Bibles because they didn't know their Bibles. And because of this, doctrine gave way to emotionalism and sensationalism, and as a result, they didn't have the fear of God. So in some sense, I, I think it was the judgment of God upon them. Well, the Bible says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, getting back to what I called the obscure benefit, over the entire 20th century and now into the 21st century, Christians in America and all the on all the West, for that matter, have had very little opposition to their faith. You know, to be a Christian has been well accepted. But today, the line of demarcation is coming into clearer focus now, and the metaphorical guns are taking their aim, and they're being leveled at the true believing Christian. You know, in my personal study, the other day I was, coming to, I, I was reading in Isaiah, I was in Isaiah 59, and I came across this passage, and I thought, wow, that really fits today. Um, but just keep in mind, if you go look it up, this is a conflation of two verses. But it says, truth has stumbled in the public squares, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I think we're starting to see that more and more, and we'll probably even see that even great, more in the future. Brothers and sisters, it's very important to be in the Word and to know God's Word. That's what, it, that's what it means to be in Christ, to, to let His Word be a lamp to our feet. And it's also very important to be part of a local church that is faithful to the Word. Also of equal importance is for us to have our homes ordered rightly so that we can be prepared for spiritual battle. We have a cause as well as a charge to preach the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and make disciples of all men, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded. And if we do so, 
It's inevitable. We will suffer persecution and rejection. And yet, as Christians, in times of ease and prosperity, the loud and raucous voice of the world interrupts our lives. And if heeded, it leads us into a snare, and we forget the cost of discipleship. Yet because of the great love and mercy of God, He awakens us through suffering and rejection, and the benefit is a greater love and devotion to God. This is the obscure benefit. If we dare to follow the Lord, we will be pushed to the margins of society. It will squeeze out our sinful fleshly desires and move us to live after the manner of the Spirit and not the flesh. The Bible says in Romans 8, if you live after the flesh, you will die. Every true believing Christian is part of the greatest of all causes to boldly follow Jesus and lift up His name and proclaim Him Lord of all, not just by our words, but by our right living, by picking up our cross and following Jesus, by becoming disciples of Christ. You know, most of the wickedness in the world is what proceeds from the heart. The Christian knows this and can properly diagnose it. But to the unbeliever, they double down in their sin. And in conjunction with the world and the devil, evil is inserted into the drama of our lives. Only Christ can save us. As I said earlier, the line of demarcation is not so veiled as, as it was in the past. And I'm speaking generally here. I know that there are many Christians in other parts of the world that are already dealing with these kinds of things. Speaking mainly of America and maybe the West. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we need each other. We have a great cause. As the world in this nation blasphemes the name of God and His laws, we get to joyfully proclaim Him as Lord of all. You know, so what are we to do? Well, actually, it's rather simple at its core. Here is where to start. Self-denial. This is the beginning of discipleship. We, you know, we can begin with some self-introspection and examine our hearts. We are in a spiritual battle with the flesh, the world, and the devil. The answer is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. So this morning our text will be taken from the Gospel of Mark, the eighth chapter. We'll be reading from verses 31 through 38. So if you want to get your Bibles and follow along. So I'm going to read uh, the verses, then I'll pray, and then we'll go back through the verses. So. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. They began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "'Get behind me, Satan!' For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we uh, read through this text and we think about discipleship and what it means, Lord, please open our hearts, open our hearts and minds to receive the words and to uh, put them into practice in our life and let us have a heart that is soft and pliable and willing to seek to understand and, and, to, and, to, and to know what you would have us do. We love you, Lord. We need you. Pray for your spirit to be with us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in order to just give a little bit of context, I'm going to go back uh, and read two verses back. Uh, verse 27 and 29, I want to read those, and that will just set up the context for uh, the rest of our verses here. So verse 27, and Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. So what's happening here is Jesus is laying the groundwork for what He's about to teach them. He's on His way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi with His disciples, and as He begins His journey, He starts to ask them questions He wants them to be thinking about. Have you ever been in a situation with maybe you're, maybe it's a wise, seasoned, and trusted friend? You know, maybe you're on a long drive, it's your father, grandfather, or just a wise person maybe, a trusted person, and they begin to ask you probing questions. You know immediately that they have something that they want to teach you. That's what I think is going on here. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? I don't think he was curious about what people thought of him. He wanted to teach them something. You know, so they give their answers, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Then the second question was more specific. But who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. For the Jew, this is the Messiah, the anointed one the expected king, the deliverer of the Jews, the king from the line of David, a glorious and powerful figure. So Peter understood. He had it right. You know, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, when the same account is told, Jesus declares that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So he was right. But he had much to learn, didn't he? 
I'll go into our text, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the text says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. I can just imagine the disciples saying, wait, what? Suffer and be rejected? You're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the very King of Israel. What are you talking about, Jesus? Suffer and be rejected? And by our own people? The leaders themselves? You know, these were, the, these were those that belonged to and were all factions of the great Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court in Israel. This is who Jesus is referring to. You know, but here's the kicker. They would have him killed. And this is the big one for Peter and no doubt the other disciples. You know, I'm not sure that Peter even heard the next phrase, and after three days rise again. All that seemed to be on his mind was, no, 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 you are the king of Israel, the powerful, glorious king of Israel. This must not be. Surely you will not be killed. I can imagine him saying something in our vernacular or something like, not on my watch. Verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus said this plainly. This is important. It was not veiled or in a parable or mysterious, but very plain. Why? Jesus wanted them to clearly understand with no ambiguity what his mission and purpose was and what it would mean to be his disciple and what it would it cost them to be his disciples. This was clear teaching by Jesus so that they could understand and not miss it. And the text continues, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is indignant. It's interesting to note that the word used is rebuke, the same word that Jesus used to cast out the unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. When Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, He says, be silent and come out of Him. So when Peter rebuked Jesus, it was not a casual um, that doesn't sound right, Jesus. Are you sure suffer, rejected, and killed? No, that's not how it went down. It was a strong rebuke. In Matthew's gospel, when the same account is told, it says, Peter said this, this shall never happen to you. I'm sure that it was not just Peter that didn't like this teaching, but Peter was the voice. Think about it. As a disciple of Jesus, you have left your nets and other employ to follow Him. You have witnessed many miracles, the blind healed, the deaf hear, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, the casting out of demons, walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee. You've been a witness to all these miracles and many more. And now, in very plain teaching, he tells you that he must 
suffer. He's not just saying he will suffer. He is saying he must suffer and be rejected by the Jewish leaders and killed. I think like Peter, I would be thinking something similar. You know, all is well when he's casting out demons and healing the sick and feeding the multitudes. We like that Jesus. The world likes that Jesus. But think about this. If your beloved leader informs you in very plain language that he must suffer, and if you are his disciple, what do you think your lot will become? If your beloved leader must be rejected, will you also be rejected? And if he will be killed, will you also be killed? These are the kinds of questions that you will of necessity be obliged to consider if you have chosen to follow Him and be His disciple. You know, this may answer why Peter gave such a passionate response. This shall never happen to you. A suffering Messiah was a scandal. That's not the kind of Lord that they were looking for to deliver Israel. One that would impose suffering, rejection, and even death. Never, Peter says. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow, that was a strong rebuke. Now think about this. Peter, a created being from dust, rebuking the very Word of God, God made flesh, and using the same falsehood that Satan used in the wilderness, when, G when Jesus began His ministry, it was the promise of a kingdom without pain and suffering or death on a cross. You know, the text also gives us a hint that he knew that the rest of his disciples didn't much like his teaching either. The text says, but turning and seeing his disciples. I can imagine that he would have looked at all his disciples with a soul-piercing glance and with that silent imperative to pay close attention. Then he turned and rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on man. You know, Peter had to learn that it's not about self-preservation and control, but the exact opposite. He had to learn that he must abandon his life and self-interest and give up control. That is what Jesus will clearly teach them that they must do if they would follow him. That is the message that all who would be followers of Christ must understand as well. Jesus wanted this teaching clearly understood as evidenced by what He said in the few remaining verses. Brothers and sisters, there is a cost to discipleship, and it is an inescapable truth that must never be aimlessly passed over, because sin is costly, and it was costly to Jesus, for it cost Him His life. It cost the life of the very Son of God, God in the flesh. He must suffer 
and be rejected and killed and rise on the third day. And he did. And in doing so, the Bible says in Romans 8, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so what then is our charge as disciples of Christ? And what is the cost of discipleship? For the rest of our time together, I'd like to draw from the, the remaining verses four points that I hope will shed some light on what the means and costs of discipleship with the Lord are. First point, this is taken from verse 33. Do not set your mind on the things of man, but set your mind on the things of God. Romans 8, 5 through 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're not deeply concerned about the things of God, if your mind is constantly preoccupied with the things of the world, you're setting your mind on the things of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we must carefully examine ourselves in regard to these things. And when necessary, repent before God and call upon Him to forgive us and ask Him to give us a love for the things of the Spirit and give us strength to resist the constant longings for the things of the flesh. The way of Christ is self-denial. Our life belongs to God. And because of that, we are free to be fully alive to the Spirit. For the Spirit is life and peace. But to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now, this is not legalism or working to please God in order to gain favor. It is a repentant heart crying out to God to forgive us and supplying us that which is lacking because of our flesh. Now, Paul says in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we are in a spiritual battle with the flesh, I pray this prayer. Lord, I have no good apart from you. I need your grace to check my wandering heart. Give me the heart like the psalmist who says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do not set your mind on the things of man, but set your mind on the things of God. And repent before God when your heart grows cold or wanders off seeking for the things of the flesh. Second point. This is taken from verses 34 and 35. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and lose your life. The text says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is interesting. 
First of all, because this was spoken to the disciples before the crucifixion. None of them knew that he would die on a cross. But make no mistake, the Jews knew what crucifixion was. And they knew that crucifixion was a heinous and an anonymous death. That is what makes this so scandalous. Just grab that, just grab that crossbeam and carry it with you and follow me. What? Can you see why Peter might say, never? Notice also that Christ said, if anyone would come after me. Essentially, he is setting us free to accept or reject him. This is not compulsion. It is his offering. But if you choose him, you must reject every other offer, bar none. This is the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. You must leave all to follow Christ. You must abandon all the attachments of this world. This is not easy. It's an act of trust. Jesus is not just our help in times of trouble, but he is Lord over all of our life. If this were not so, we would not even be able to learn how to believe. By nursing our own will, we forfeit our faith in Christ. Reading from the text again, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, made this statement. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Does Does this mean that when you receive Christ, it's a death sentence? Yes, in one way or the other. First, you die to yourself. Your cross is waiting for you when you become a Christian. You just need to pick it up. If you're seeking to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake and the gospel, you will find it. What an interesting paradox. You know, we find this principle being applied unknowingly by the unbelieving world all the time. You know, albeit not in the same context. Think about this for a minute. The man that feverishly chases wealth his whole life then finds out in the end that he has nothing of substance, that is. You know, many times his wealth has cankered his marriage and family. All that he holds dear, he just cannot grasp. Many a wealthy man dies a broken-hearted man. You know, look around you. You will see even the most successful people by the world's standards. They live broken, empty lives. Did you know that suicide is more common among people with means than people without worldly goods? Why is this? I think it's because of this principle of losing your life or saving it. If you're seeking your own self-interest and building up yourself, satisfaction, purpose, and meaning will escape your grasp regardless of the intensity of your chase. In fact, the harder you run after it, the more it'll flee from you. And whatever happy face that you put on is only a mask to cover up your discontented heart. 
You know, those who reach the pinnacle of worldly achievements find out when they reach the top, it's the loneliest place in the world. But there it is that they find an abundance of nothingness. Well, could they echo the words of Solomon, all is vanity and chasing after the wind. When the Spirit regenerates the unbeliever and they become a believer in Jesus, there is this certainty that there is a cross waiting for them to pick up. Only God knows the details of, our, of, of their cross, of your cross, my cross. But to be a disciple of Christ is to live a life of self-denial and losing your life in order to find it. Third point. This is taken directly from the text, verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is here speaking in economic terms, kind of the balance sheet approach, assets and liabilities. If you had on the balance sheet assets of multiple kinds, you know, everything that the heart can desire, homes, cars, vacation homes, land, the latest and greatest electronics, you name it. And it's all in your asset column because of your hard work and shrewd business acumen. But you must not forget with every asset, there's the expense side, the loss, what you had to forfeit for the assets themselves. This is actually what they cost you. So then in the course of your acquisitions, in our metaphor here, if you traded your soul, if that is the one thing in your liabilities column, you would be bankrupt. You would be an absolute failure disproportionately in the negative to the greatest value of things, your very soul. What is your soul worth? Now, that's a good question we're thinking about. How often do you think about your soul in comparison to how often do you think about your pocketbook? You know, we stress about money and how we are going to afford to pay for things. And when you're my age, you think about retirement. And when you're younger, it's like, what if a car breaks down? And uh, there's, there's just so many things money-wise that we can think about. But seriously, though, how often do you think about your soul? And do you care for your soul and nourish it and feed it? Take care of your soul as, you would, as, you, as your body and nourish it. Now, even the health of the body has great value. Ask anyone that has wealth but has poor health what they would give to have their health again. I bet they would give all, the, all their wealth away to have a guarantee for good health. Isn't it interesting how people will absorb an incredible amount of time, money, and energy to keep and preserve their health and physical well-being, and yet they give very little thought to preserving their soul. You know, most people who enjoy a decent amount of health go on living as if they were never going to die or stand before God to be judged. If that is you, or if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would say to you, repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save you. And deliver you on the day when your soul will be judged. You can receive forgiveness of sins when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. And you can know that you have been forgiven. 
because of Christ. And thus you can preserve your soul. You know, this is one of the most profound and sobering questions that the Lord asks, and consequently one that should run on repeat in our minds day and night. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Last, the fourth point. This is taken from verse 38. Guard your heart against the fear of man and the praise of the world. If you do not, your very actions will manifest shame for Christ in His Word. Reading from the text. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now, Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And if you said to a family member or a church member or what have you, you know, please don't walk next to me. I, I don't want people to know that we're together. You're an embarrassment to me. This would be very clear that you were ashamed of them. You know, when I was, when I was young, first or second grade, my sister and I, we had to walk to school. It was, it was over a mile. It was quite a daunting thing for, for me, I remember. And, and I think I gained some comfort having my sister there with me, and I think she gained some comfort with me being there, and we would walk together to school. We had an older sister that was three years older than me, and she was supposed to walk with us to school. In fact, she was given the, the charge, you know, you, walk, you stay with them as they go to school, as, as you guys all walk together. We would start out, and immediately she would put some distance between us wasn't too long before there was a hundred yards between us and her, and she would walk that way to school. Did it every day. And my sister and I, we always felt that she was ashamed of us. You know, her actions spoke louder to us than any words that she could have said. Does your life or my life, by our action, do they reflect by our actions that we are ashamed of Christ? You know, there are three passages of Scripture that just makes, makes me shudder and just stops my heart. One is the one that we read, of Him will the Son of Man be ashamed. The other one is when Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Then there's this one in Revelation three fifteen through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If we are ashamed of Jesus, we become lukewarm, salt that has lost its savor to be cast out and trodden under foot of man. In closing, I wanted to come back to what I spoke about in the beginning. You know, we are living in an exceedingly adulterous and sinful generation, a generation that has no fear of God and one that hates God's Word. As I said earlier, our legislators in this country recently passed the bill that they call the Respect for Marriage Act. The Bible says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
You know, this bill is an extremely overt attempt to deceptively use words designed to violate their meaning. It would be akin to drafting a bill that protects a group of anarchists and calling it the Respect for Law Act. This is wickedness. And And it's a direct affront to God's law for marriage. This is just one of the many ways that we have turned our backs on God. You know, short of a true God-ordained spiritual revival, I only see things getting worse and the pressure mounting against those who love and honor God's Word. We as Christians cannot be ashamed of God's Word, for it is the truth. We cannot be ashamed of Christ or He will be ashamed of us. You know, so is the suffering, the rejection, is this good for our soul? Yes. Anything that exposes us, threatens us, and causes us to turn to the one who loves us and gave his life for us is good for us. Now, these are sobering thoughts. I understand that it's difficult to feel the shame of the world. It is a natural human emotion to want to be liked and accepted. But if we would be a disciple of Christ, we must bear the shame, the rejection, and suffer for Christ's sake, or we cannot be His disciple. You know, the darker the world gets, the more that even a dim light will shine. Do not let your light be extinguished because of the love of the world and the fear of man. We should not hide our light and put it under a bushel, but let it shine brightly. Jesus was not ashamed to die for us, but He bore our shame. Let us not be ashamed to live for Him. Let us suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let us, brothers and sisters, lock arms together in our commitment to serving our Lord. Let us pray for each other to be strong against the world and to bear the shame and suffer with Christ that we might also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, thank thank You for this time together. Thank You for Your Word, for it is truth. We pray, Lord, that You will give us strength to stand firm and true to Your Word. Help us to love, love You in our hearts. Be not ashamed of You, but speak the words of truth to others. Let us learn to be disciples, follow after you, picking up our cross and following you. Let us grow in our knowledge and love for you. We love you, Lord. We need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.